You have to stay on top of trends. Today's leaders always need to be learning. In this environment of limited resources, the only way to remain competitive is your ability to leverage your most important resource. Welcome to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. In this program, we'll dive into leadership fundamentals that are essential to your success. Now, here's your host, Tom Crea. Good Monday morning. I hope everyone had a great holiday, and we are going to kick off the new year with a fabulous guest who's got a book called Great CEOs are lazy, excuse me. And um, what I want to share with you is uh, one of the important things that Jim Schlexer shares in this book that I thought was uh, something that was very special to me was all about why your learner hat and learning is so important. And as you know, this show is about your evolving leadership journey, which means everybody who is here listening and is a believer in the servant leader principles that we talk about, like self-awareness and humility, empathy and listening. You get the idea. Um, Jim's going to talk to you about that. And I found him on LinkedIn just because of some of his posts, and I thought he'd be a very, very interesting guest, and I'd love to have him. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here, Jim. Thank you very much for joining us, and welcome aboard. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. Absolutely. And, and, and listen, we're, we're, uh, we've eclipsed 10,000 listeners in our um, pilot last year. So let's get going and talk about today's episode. And Jim's going to talk to us about how really exceptional CEOs get more done in less time. And it's not just for CEOs because, you know, as you know, you don't get to become a CEO unless you go through the ranks and you learn to lead. And uh, he's going to talk about techniques and, you know, ultimately about being able to take that time back and spending quality time with your family and friends. So time management is also a huge part of his book. And uh, he's going to talk to you about eliminating the single big business, excuse me, biggest constraint and how he's going to apply that to you as a leader. I will be curious to hear that as well. But, I, you know, without reading his guest bio, you can read that online at the uh, the show site, but I wanted to just share with you a couple of uh, interesting things about Jim. He's a certified sommelier. Did I pronounce that right that time? Sommelier. Sommelier, I did it, it wrong again. Okay. It, is, it is the French word. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, thank you. And uh, if you were like me, I had to look it up this morning. That means he's a wine steward. Um, <laughs> so he knows about wine, and he's actually got a blog about that. So uh, it's called professionaldrinking.com, is that right? Exactly correct. All right, so if you want to look about that, you know, and there's 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 a connection there, and he'll tell you about that um, because it's important to be able to handle yourself in social situations too. At any rate, he's an avid soccer, soccer player, a prolific reader, which is which ex, is important to this audience, and he recently climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. So if you have any questions, our call-in number is 866 472 5790. Again, that's 866-472-5790. So Jim, what inspired you to write this book, Great CEOs Are Lazy? Mm -hmm. um, well, Tom, you know, I've been coaching CEOs, uh, well, now for, I think, 15 years. And <clears throat> partway through that journey, it became clear to me after talking to literally thousands of CEOs that some of them just approach the job differently and they handle themselves differently. Um, and I wanted to capture what that was because it was sort of secret sauce that people weren't talking about. And uh, that inspired me to write the book. And, and really where it came down to is literally within, I'm going to say, five to ten minutes of starting to talk to a CEO, I could tell if they were a good CEO and in control of their responsibilities or, let's say, a less than good CEO and uh, not really focused on the right things and not really getting the impact that they wanted. And the, the great CEOs are lazy it's it's uh, is really talking about that first group that we're in control of their responsibilities and not working crazy hours. 
So if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that when, when one of my guests says a word that uh, is a favorite topic of mine, I'm going <laughs> to highlight it again. And that word was responsibilities. And it's so huge for any leader. So in the, as he opens, as a matter of fact, when I got to the end of the book, Jim summarizes, and he says, if we had to summarize the approach of the lazy CEO, CEO in a couple of words, they would be focus and leverage. And before I read that conclusion, I was thinking that exact same question. And my answer was, I had three, and they were curiosity, time management, and the ability to develop and delegate with others. So we'll let Jim talk about that as we go, and we'll see how that all dovetails. But uh, in the very beginning of the book, he talks about, he's talking about time management, and he talks about this concept of the error of uniform time allocation, and he has a term that he calls peanut buttering, which I thought was fascinating, and I'm going to let him tell you what that is. Um, yeah, absolutely, Tom. So the Peanut buttering was just a, a mental image that I tried to come up with to describe what bad CEOs or bad leaders were doing uh, that didn't allow them to get the results that they were after. So let's go back to what a good leader does for a second, and then we'll, we'll go over to peanut buttering. So, and, and the analogy here is is a garden hose. Um, um, and you imagine that when I'm trying to get flow rate out of a water, out of a garden hose, um, at some point, uh, and we've all water, watered our garden, there's a kink that develops in the garden hose. And if we want to get the water to flow again, we've got to go find the kink and open it up. And it turns out in every system you can name and, and actually work along that hose, we can do all kinds of work on that hose, but only the work at the kink is actually useful work. That's the only work that actually opens up the water flow. So work not at the kink isn't particularly useful. So what bad CEOs do, or bad leaders do, is they, instead of finding the kink and opening it up, they uniformly apply their time across all of their responsibilities. A little bit for my suppliers, a little bit for my customers, a little bit for my employees, a little bit for my stockholders, a little bit for finance, a little bit for, and you know, and I know you're former military, and the central principle of military is application of force, right? You want to have overwhelming application of force at a point. It's exactly the same thing in a business. Absolutely. So what you want to, right? That's the only way to win. Yep. If I just spread my forces across a, a, a front, I'm never going to get anywhere. I've got to apply them very precisely at, an, at a leverage point. Same is true in business. And right. so the bad CEOs are uniformly applying their time. In other words, peanut buttering their time across the whole piece of toast or bagel um, mm -hmm. and not getting great results. And the really good ones are saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to figure out where the really critical point is and I'm going to spend a bunch of my time at that really critical point or the kink in the hose. Right. We would call that exploiting success and taking advantage of that opportunity. Now, look, yep. uh, for the listeners, I definitely want to share this with you because he, Jim has done a couple things. And, and I was teasing him about that before we got on the air is that he starts several of his chapters or most of his chapters with a great story or analogy. And, and if you know, I'm a speaker as well, and it's really important when you're speaking or you're leading or you're communicating, and I'm skipping to a part in his book where he talks about essentially the KISS principle, keep it simple, because you're trying to communicate and taking complex ideas and synthesizing them into to very uh, – Sound bites that, that the listener or your audience is going to take away is critical. And so when he is talking about a garden hose, man, it's an analogy that you're never going to forget. When he's talking about peanut buttering, you're not going to forget that. So, Jim, do you want to say anything else about that? I just I just wanted to, you know, talk, comment on those. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that's the there's a there's a great book made to stick with uh, Chip Heath and his brother wrote. And they talk about um, the power of stories. 
um, you know, Aesop's fables are thousands of years old because they're stories. If he just said, you know, be nice to people, nobody would ever remember that. But, you know, they, they, he tells a story about it. Um, you get a very different reaction, and those stories last through time. Same thing, go back to Jesus. Jesus told parables. He talked in parables. He talked in stories. He did that because he wanted people to remember what he said. And so, as a leader, we can learn from those two pretty strong communicators and build stories around our, our critical points that we want to make. You know, it's, and it's hard. I'm, a, I'm an engineer by background. I want to go to the data and the factual actual, and, you know, um, it doesn't inspire people and they don't remember it the way they would if you could just boil it down to a nice story that really concisely explains what we're after. And that's what I was trying to do with it. I didn't do it in all. I'll, I'll admit I wasn't hugely successful, but in a couple of places I got, you know, reasonable stories that people are, can easily remember. And I hear kink in the hose. When I talk to people who've read the book, that, that pops for everybody. Okay. Jim is clearly modest. They're not just reasonable stories. I mean, some are really, really good. And I was like, wow, this is, I'm going to remember this. And, and hopefully you're going to pick up the book and do the same. Now, hey, interesting as well. You said you're an engineer. I studied computer science, but I learned those same lessons about communication. You know, people aren't as much interested in the facts as I used to think that they were and should have been. At any rate, let's move on to, he, he, he talks about five different hats that every CEO or leader needs to have. And, um, the most important one, I believe he described it, was the, the first hat that he talks about is the learner hat and your ability and your thirst for learning. So I'm just going to let you springboard from there, and then I'm going to ask you a few more questions if you don't mind. Yeah, I, if I had to pick uh, maybe the single most important uh, identifier of success for a leader of any type but a, or a CEO is that curiosity, that want to learn, that sort of thirst that I'm, I'm never done with my journey. You know, it, it's so... Uh, I'm, I'm going to say depressing where I get on the phone talking to a CEO and you know, they're mid fifties, uh, which is not old anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, they go, yeah, I, I'm not, I can't learn computers. I'm too old. I go, Are you kidding me? You know, yeah. your, your life is barely half over. You've got lots of time. You can't be done. And the ones that are good are, you know, they don't age means nothing don't know it means nothing to them. They're going to just go dig in and learn it. And they believe they have an ability to learn anything that they need to, to be successful in life or in, in work or wherever. So that learner hat that a, it, that a CEO wears is important. And, and what I'm trying to discriminate by identifying these five hats and making learner one of them is that learning is actually part of the job. So some people think, you know, I'm doing the job and learning is something outside the job. That's actually not important. Um, and what I'm trying to represent is no, actually learning is a critical part of the job that you're looking forward as a leader, that you're trying to figure out what's next. Because if you're not doing it, uh, I can tell you that everybody models you as the leader. And so if you're not doing it, nobody else in your organization is. So if you think they're going to figure it out when you've stopped learning, you know, you're in for another answer, unfortunately. So learning is a critical hat. It is the work of a leader and a CEO. And uh, I'd say it's probably the, the largest single indicator of, of long-term success. But here's the question. Are you, are you doing computer science anymore? I'm not. I'm not doing engineering. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a whole other story, but my heart was never in it like it could have been, should have done, been. And I will tell yeah. you that my graduate school advisor, who you may know, his name was Randy Pausch, and he died from pancreatic cancer yeah. and he wrote the book the last lecture fantastic yeah. but let's not get on that tangent but he was a fantastic 
uh, advisor and I enjoyed having him as a friend and a mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, at any rate, that's another great book that you might want to pick up. So yeah, I've not it, read it. No, okay. Um, yeah, it's a great story about, you know, putting things, uh, what are the most important things in life? We'll say, uh, yeah, no, I, I know of the book. I've just not read it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's, uh, I'm going to again, go back to some of the things Jim said. He talked about, um, curiosity. Like I thought that's why I picked up on this book. You know, if you're going to have an, if you want to have an innovative organization and you want to have a, you have to have a learning organization and you can't do it alone because I think Jim writes in the book, we is stronger than me. How do you write that? How did you say that? Uh, yeah, that's it, it, I, I didn't originate that particular one, but we is stronger than me is absolutely true. You know, but right. that's, that's so, more about e- engaging people. But yes. Yeah. And you want to engage people and they're not going to feel like they need to learn. But if they see you're a passionate person and you're curious and you're always asking questions and you're pushing the envelope, it just it kind of they're going to feed off of you and you want to yeah. be able to set that example and uh, and to get them to follow your lead. Do we not? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, well, we, we, we set the pace, right? I mean, we cannot expect others to do something we're not willing to do ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And so he's talking about in part of the book, uh, lifelong learning, and it's all about attitude. And, you know, formal education is just a start point. Um, yeah. And really, it's about an, a making a shift in your attitude. Um, and I, I made a note about uh, being humble as a leader. Did you want to comment in that, at all about that? Yeah, I mean, there are uh, arrogance is uh, is is just toxic. I think as a leader, um, you know, and and there's this balancing point that we have to have as a leader, where we are confident uh, because that helps people feel like they want to follow us. Um, feels like the goal that we're setting is achievable. So that confidence needs to permeate the organization. But if you push that too far, it turns into arrogance, mm-hmm. and 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 that is really. The self versus the us. So there's confidence in my ability and my organization's ability. That's strong and positive. When it goes to I'm the story here, I'm what's important, that shifts into arrogance. And I think people just um, recoil from that. They don't want to follow arrogant leaders. Um, And so you've got to be careful as a leader to hold on to that humility to say, and, and for me, I do it with humor. You know, and tell people, look, I make lots of mistakes, so just be prepared, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, right. you know, when you start by, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes, they go, okay, you know, he's not invulnerable. And, and that really is what arrogance is. It's invulnerability. It's not being willing to be authentic and genuine and disclose myself, including my flaws as a leader. And I think particularly as this new generation of, 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 uh, of people are coming into the workforce, that authenticity, that genuineness of you as a leader is incredibly important. And in fact, they sniff it out like, like truffle pigs. I mean, they will find a lack of uh, uh, authenticity so fast it'll make your head spin. So humility and authenticity for me go together. And I think, but you need to be confident. So I don't want, you know, looking at your shoes, no confidence. Nobody wants to follow a leader like that. So it's, it's, it's sort of want to be right on that edge of confident in the future and your abilities, but not arrogant. That, that's the trick. Absolutely. And, you know, you reminded me when you used the word vulnerability. And I had a guest last month and we were talking about vulnerability. And I believe this comes from Brene Brown, who is the Mm -hmm. expert or master in this particular field or area. And there is a comment to the effect that when you, what appears as uh, what you're afraid to show on the inside appears as courage to people on the outside when you are, when you reveal yourself and you can show your vulnerability. So, 
All right. Mm-hmm. So the uh, next thing I wanted to tell you is to comment on is Jim writes in the book. He says, you know, learning from other industries is extremely important. And he, and here's a quote, the truly profound ideas are going to come from outside your industry. Now he also talks about reading broadly and I'll have to admit, I tend to read more business books than I do fiction. And, and that's something that, you know, when I read that thought, I thought, you know, that's a good point, Jim. I start, I need to broaden my horizons as well. Mm-hmm. So do you want to comment anymore before we close out the learner hat? Any thoughts at all that, that we didn't cover on learning that you would like to talk about? Um, just that one about outside your industry. A lot of people spend most of their time inside their industry. And, and the problem is, you know, if you get together with other people in your industry, you all kind of grew up the same way. You all learn the same stuff. You believe the same things. And so the probability of a unique idea in there is relatively low. But if you go spend time outside your industry in other kinds of industries, you get really interesting ideas. I'll give you a quick example. We worked with somebody who was in the ocean-bound freight industry. And so these are containerized freight uh, that goes from China to us and so forth. (laughs) And they began to take lessons from the airline industry about dynamic pricing and uh, the way you could book orders and so forth. And they just stole existing ideas from another industry and they revolutionized the ocean-bound freight industry because it was kind of behind the times a little bit. So they stole from another industry or borrowed, used those ideas there, nothing new, low risk, and yet they revolutionized an industry as a result of it. So it's there to be had if you just go look for it. And I remember reading that story in your book, plus you had a couple more <laughs> examples, and they, they were all fantastic examples. And again, these stories, are, they resonate. Um, look, last thing at all, um, you, you do talk about CEO coaching, and it doesn't have to be just CEO, but if, if you can afford leadership coaching, what, what would you share with our listeners about receiving coaching? Well, I'm in the business, so obviously I, I'm a fan. But as when I was a CEO of various companies, I had a CEO coach and an advisory group around me, a mastermind group to use the Napoleon Hill Think and Grow Rich model mm-hmm. of people that were in my court, had no agenda, and just were trying to help me on my journey. And that is a profound thing if you can generate it. You know, organizations like ours create them for you. If you can't create it on your own with a bunch of sort of respected friends, buy them a, gla- a bottle of wine and and just talk about what's going on and get feedback. It's, it, you know, Tiger Woods has a coach. Why wouldn't you have a coach? Right. Um, and some people say, well, I talk to my friends. I go, look, the difference between talking to a friend about your issues and having a, a professional coach is the difference between going to the gym and working out a little bit with a buddy and going to the gym and having a trainer actually force you to do things that are going to make you stronger, faster, better. And so you can invest the time at the gym casually or you can invest it with purpose with a coach. And yes, it costs a little more money, but the results should be dramatically different as well, or else it's not worth it. So we think about it like that. If you want to get better, if you want to continually learn, a coach can help you on that journey, as can a mastermind group. Right. And, and, I, and I wrote down yet another word, and the word I came, that came to mind was accountability. You want to have an accountability <clears throat> partner. We call that a battle buddy in the military. Somebody who's mm. going to make sure you're going to pull your weight, <laughs> because in the military, if your battle buddy isn't going to pull your weight, you guys are going to be could have bad things happen. So, um, so that's our term, accountability partner, battle buddy. Uh, you want somebody who also can keep pace with you and is going to push you. So I'll yes. leave it at that, and we'll move on to this next hat, which you talk, and then we're going to go through this one quickly. Um, I only have a couple questions for you, and this is his architect hat. And I would just t- describe to you that it's mostly about attitude. And Jim, if you don't mind, share how you opened that chapter with you had a great story about the, the worker and whether you can read what I'm seeing showing you here. Yeah. Go ahead. 
Yeah, so a man came upon a th- three workers actually, um, uh, and one they were all laying bricks. They were all doing the same thing, same job. And he asked the first man what he was doing. He said, "Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm earning money for my family uh, by laying bricks." Okay. He goes to the next guy. He says, "What are you doing?" He says, "I'm, I'm building a wall um, here." And finally, went to the third and he said, "What are you doing?" He says, "I'm actually I'm building a cathedral." And so the vision of me being part of a much larger thing and, uh, and architecting that answer is, uh, is really what's profound in that particular, in that particular story. That y- y- how you see your work and the impact of your work is really uh, what's, what's interesting. Right. And, and so it has everything to do with attitude. And one of the things he talks yeah. about in this chapter as well is um, – he talks about communication where simple is hard. You know, we're almost yep. on break time. Um, so if you don't mind, talk about what you mean by simple is hard in communication. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, for me, when I see long form communication, it's because somebody really didn't do the thinking. They really didn't spend the time to boil it down to its critical essence and think about what really matters here. There's a, it's attributed to Lincoln and Churchill, but it was actually a French philosopher, Blase Pascal, who said, had I had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter, which means if I had thought about it more, I could have condensed it. And as leaders, we can't go long form. Um, Larry Bossidy, used to be the CEO of Allied Signal, said, I walk around my company talking about three things. So he's found in a multi, multi-billion dollar company, the three things that are important, and that's all he talked about, those three things. Jack Welch did the same um, and so as leaders, we need to be able to boil our message down to something very simple and digestible, understandable, preferably with stories around them, and you'll get a much better communication result. So when you see yourself going long form, you got to stop and say, I'm not thinking hard enough about this to boil it down to its critical essence. And I just want to clarify for the listeners, here's, I'm going to paraphrase what Jim's saying. When he's saying long form, it's like when, if I'm receiving an email from you and it's pages long, which you could have condensed into a paragraph or two, that's what he's talking about. It take the time to condense and make sure that your message is going to be crystal clear uh, because you're going to lose people and it's not going to be clear if it's two pages long. Now, look, I know we're, we're, we've got maybe four or five minutes before break. I guess I jumped the gun there. So we're going to talk about um, to couple the, the architect hat with what you call the engineer hat, and we're going to save the coach and player hat for the second half of the show. So sure. um, you start off this engineer hat chapter with uh, you can't improve what you don't measure. If you would, yep. talk about that, please. Uh, yeah, it's a, early in my career, I was a process engineer for a bit. And um, if you're trying to improve a process of any type, um, you first have to measure it. Uh, because if you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going to go and you, you, you don't know how to make it better. And so, you know, imagine if you're trying to lose weight and uh, I took away your scale. I mean, I guess you could do it, but <laughs> you really wouldn't know where you stand on any given day or over time. And um, in fact, when I'm trying to make, I actually chart it. I'll actually do a little chart of my weight and am I going in the right direction or the wrong direction? And, you know, I, I went crazy on cookies. Okay. Uh, there's, I'm paying the price. There it is in the, in the numbers. And so I know the correlation between my actions and the outcomes. And the same is true in all of our businesses and all of our lives. If we measure it, we can improve it. If we don't measure it, we have no shot of actually going in and improving it. Um, and so, that's for me the first move is when we're trying to make something better. Um, do we have a measurement system? Do we have key performance indicators that allow us to, to know are we doing well or not? And uh, 
and we should, as we do efforts to improve it, to open up the kink, we should see improvements in those figures. And if we don't, then we either had the wrong kink or maybe there's something wrong with measurement, but uh, measurement's critical. Um, and that's the engineer in me think talking, obviously. Well, I got to tell you, I, I'm a lot like that too. I, I like to um, put down on paper what it is I think I should be doing and whether or not I've reached my goal. And it, and it helps. It's also an internal motivator for me as well. Um, mm. So in that chapter, you talk about stapling. I had never heard that concept. I liked it. If you would share with the audience what stapling is. Um, yeah, this is sort of a process engineering trick that we use. Um, and we all ought to do it in whatever process we're responsible for, which is, um, in that case, I'm talking about an order that a customer I might place. And you just staple yourself to the, to the order or the customer and run through the process that you subject your customers to. And, you know, very quickly, you'll, you'll realize whether your process is customer friendly and easy and efficient or it's just a nightmare to go through. And we've all been through nightmare processes and we go, how could they possibly not understand how bad this process is? And the answer is because nobody in that organization ever stapled themselves to a customer and went through the same journey that we go through as a customer and experienced it personally. Because if they did, there would be changes immediately. And that's exactly what I'm hoping for the, for the people reading the book is they go, maybe I will do that. So let me follow, let's say you're running accounts payable. Let me follow an accounts a, 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 a bill from the beginning of my process to the point we get paid. And let's see how many people touch it and how many handoffs we have and how many times information is entered and how complicated it is. And by the end of it, you go, oh my gosh, that is so inefficient. We, need to, we don't need to do this. We don't need to do that. We can shorten that. I need to move Sally next to Bob. I need to, you'll have a hundred ideas by just running through that stapling yourself to an order or stapling yourself to a customer. And, and I will say e-commerce, they've really figured this out. They figured out how to get you from looking at an item to having it ordered and on its way to your house with the minimum number of clicks. And that's right. exactly what they did to accomplish that. Yeah, and that again, that story is in his book, and uh, and I would tell you when I when I read this, and I the reason I highlighted stapling is because now let's uh, and I'll share this, and we'll go into break. But um, if you take that concept that he's talking about as a CEO, and you apply it to yourself as you've gone from the first line manager to a mid manager, well, maybe you're now to the point where you haven't done the job that the people on your team are doing, and perhaps you should you know a walk a mile in their shoes, staple yourself to them, learn their job before you start giving instructions, and maybe you never give instructions because we're going to talk about that in the second half of the show about if you want to follow Jim's 70% rule and, and have that free quality time with your family, you're going to learn to button up and uh, I won't spoil that, but we're getting into it. And so before we take our break, let me just share once again, if you have questions and you want to call in, the number is 866-472-5790. Again, that's 866-472-5790. We've been talking with Jim Slex and he is the author of Great CEOs Are Lazy, and we will be right back after the break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Works with leaders, something he consistently sees is their struggle with engagement and retention, then their frustration with having to repeat the employee development process again and again. What most people don't know is the answer lies in love. Once they realize that they simply need to apply the golden rule, the results are surprising. 
They start bringing out the best in others. They develop confident, capable employees, and they find they have more fun and freedom and less stress in their lives. Perhaps most importantly, they satisfy what they've been craving. Now they've created the culture that they and their team have always wanted. This is when Synergy takes over, and the results are astounding. The first step is critical. When you exhibit the self-awareness and humility that shows you need to learn and improve continuously, you set the example and encourage others to follow. To learn more, visit Blackhawk Leadership Development at blackhawkspeaks.com. That's blackhawkspeaks.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you have questions or comments about the program, you may send an email to Tom at BlackHawkSpeaks.com. Now, back to your evolving leadership journey. Welcome back. We have been speaking this morning with Jim Schlexer, the author of Great CEOs Are Lazy. And before we pick it up, I just want to share with you that uh, if you're catching us now, we've spoken about three of the five hats that he believes every CEO or leader should don to be effective. And if I didn't say this earlier in the beginning message uh, or message in this episode, I want to just remind you that if you want to take a look at any of the past guests or see who we've got coming up next, simply go to yourevolvingleadershipjourney.com and you'll be able to see everything you want about the schedule and I've got links to all the guests and their various websites and social media should you want to reach out to them directly. All right, so let's get back to Jim. We've been talking about these five hats and uh, I say what I think are two of the best three in my humble opinion. I like the learner hat and I like the coach hat and I like the player hat. So we're going to talk now about the coach hat and Jim is talking about talent acquisition and it's one of the highest, highest, excuse me, leverage investments you can make and why? Because it's about people. So, Jim, why don't you start us off? What's that chapter about? Yeah, I mean, coaching is about uh, acquiring, uh, retaining, and, and maximizing the talent in your organization. <clears throat> and, you know, I talk about it, it is probably the highest leverage hat uh, that's out there. Because if you get the right people around you focused in the right direction, you know, they're going to help you get there. You can never get there by yourself. So, you, you're going to need the right people around you. And so, I, I talk about the idea that every CEO should add the title CTO, which is chief talent officer to their, uh, to their card. I actually think that's true of every leader. If you have people working for you. The primary thing you should be thinking about is acquiring the best talent I possibly can onto my team to get the result that I want to get. Now we'll get into directing them and guiding them and, and how much touch and delegation in a little bit, I think, but acquiring and finding the best talent you possibly can is really central. And 
you can't spend too much time on it. There's a book that I like and we recommend called Who. It's by GH Smart. And uh, they have developed a hiring methodology that they claim go, brings you from sort of a 50% probability of success, to, which is about the average on a senior position, to an 80 to 90% probability of success through their methodology. Now, here's the thing. It takes a long time. It's a lot of work, their methodology. And I think a lot of people say, look, I'm just not going to spend that much time on it. And in our avocation, we talk to uh, CEOs and leaders about it is that there really isn't much that's more important than finding the right people and put them on the team. And so, yeah, it's a lot of time. Yeah, it's real work. And it's worth it because the difference between the, an A player and a B or C player in a job is profound. It, um, we can talk about that in a little bit. But uh, so investment in time to find the right talent is super critical. And that's the first part of the coach had is finding the right people. Okay. And that's, that's all great. And um, I want to take a step back because again, some of these uh, listeners aren't CEOs and they're in leadership roles. So yeah. Jim talks about a players, B players and C players. And I'm going to, I'm going to give him the lead in and he'll, he'll pick the ball up and run with it. I'm sure. But he talks about people who have a good attitude who might be B players and people who might be A players, but may not have the best attitude. All right, Jim, go ahead. Yeah, these are these are some of the hard decisions. We build a little grid <clears throat> of uh, does somebody achieve their numbers, uh, yes or no, and do they have the right attitude, or really do they buy into what we're doing here, yes or no? And you can imagine people that make their numbers and buy into what we're doing. Well, give me a hundred people like that because those are my patriots. They're going to bring me where I want to go. Easy decision. Another easy decision is don't make the numbers and don't want to don't buy in. In other words, they don't really want to be here and they really don't make the numbers either. Those are easy decisions. We need to coach them to find another environment to operate in because this isn't for them. Clearly we don't want people to be unhappy. The, 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 the one that, that gets a little more interesting is they, they buy into what we're doing. They really want to be here. They, they, there are kind of people and they're not making the numbers. That's where you come in and coach. Those are people we're going to work with because they're wanting to go on the journey. They just need a little help on the journey we're going on. And so that's where you need to drop in as a leader. And, and those are the people to focus on is, you know, they want to be here. They're trying like heck. They just can't quite get over the bar. We're going to work with them to get them over the bar. And then the really, really hard decision is they make the numbers and they don't buy in. In other words, they do it their way. They don't buy into the, the, the approach you want to take. And these people are toxic to culture. Um, it happens a lot in sales forces where you have a top level performer. They're making numbers like crazy. They won't fill out expense reports. They won't fill out, you know, they won't come to the meetings. They kind of thumb their nose to the whole corporate process. And yet they make great numbers and you go, ah, what do I do? I love the performance. And yet they destroy my culture having this person in the organization. And as a leader, we have an obligation to either get them on the program or get them out of the organization. And it is super painful when you've got a high performer that you've got to coach out of the organization, but everybody's looking at you to do it. They all know the person's toxic. They all know that they don't belong here. And if you don't do it as a leader, then it begins to diminish your leadership position with the organization. Uh, Netflix has a rule about this. They call it, they call them brilliant jerks. Um, and they, they will not tolerate brilliant jerks in their organization. So we all know that person, they're insanely smart. They have great ideas and they're just 
toxic. They just don't want to be around them. I'd never want to go with a beer and hang out with them. Those people need to get out of your organization. And Netflix says it's not worth the performance to have those people in the organization. They're too damaging the team to process the culture, and we're going to coach them out of the organization. So that's that's kind of that four brocks, buy in, don't buy in, make the numbers, don't make the numbers decision as a leader of any organization, by the way. Exactly. Now, look, I want to share with you a quote that I extracted from his book. He writes, ultimately, the organization is looking to you to be the head coach and make the changes on the team if they are needed. If you aren't willing to wear your coach hat, they might begin to wonder if you aren't a C player yourself. So think about that. Yep. All right. So it doesn't doesn't come without a cost to let that decision go sideways. It does have a cost. Yeah, for me, I, I would just tell you it's personally not worth it to have toxic players on your team. Um, I would rather work with the B player who I can mold and help and at least be happy together. Um, mm. So at any rate, um, he's talked about the the assessing the attitude. But one thing when you're talking about assessing weaknesses and you assume, let's go with the person who's got a good attitude, that B player that you want to help, you say develop the individual, shift the talent, and remove three steps. Explain what you mean by shift the talent? Um, It it comes from a philosophy that there is a place where everybody can be successful. And as a leader, I think we need to come to our people with that in mind, that there are no bad people. They're just people that are in the wrong situation. And so if we've got them in a position where, you know, we, for example, they want to be here, they want to try, we, we tried to get them over the bar three or four times. It's just not going to happen. Well, the answer is not terminate that person. The answer is we've got good people here. We just got them in the wrong job. And it's our obligation as a leader to find a job where that person could be highly successful and happy. Um, hopefully, it's inside our organization. And that would be my first move is shift the talent, try to move them to a place where they, their skills and abilities can make them super successful. Um, I'll give you an example. I had a guy that worked for me, incredibly high performer. He was in marketing. And to be honest, wasn't the greatest marketer in the world, but yet the talent level was like an 11 out of 10. We ultimately moved him over to sales and he just absolutely crushed it. He was happy and he's built an entire career in sales as a result of that move. So we could have had a very unhappy marginal player in marketing if I'd stayed with him in that position. And by moving him over to a place where his gifts really shined, he's become extremely successful in the role. So that's what I mean. We want to find a home for somebody in our organization where they can be successful. Now, a place doesn't always exist in our organization. And that's when it gets a little difficult because we go, look, Tom, we love you. We know you love us. We don't have a place where you can be highly successful in this organization. And so let me help you find a place outside this organization where you can be highly successful, which basically means we're going to fire you. But we're doing it from a place of compassion where genuinely my goal is to have you be in a place where you're happy and successful long-term. Uh, Jack Welch talked about it. He says, the crime that managers commit is to keep somebody in an organization when they know they cannot be successful in it. You're abusing these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, you only have so many years on this world. Are we going to spend it in a job that we're not good at, that we hate, that we know we're not going to be successful at? We'll have all that stress. I mean, why would we want that in our lives? Why would we want to do that to people? And so actually sometimes moving people to another organization is the most humane thing you can possibly do. But that's not our first move. First move is coach them. Second move, try to find a place inside. If we can't, we find a place outside for them. 
Right. So to recap what he just said, I'm going to paraphrase in my words. Again, he used the word compassion. I love that word. Um, when you treat people with the dignity and respect that we all deserve and they see that you're you have their best interests in heart at heart, excuse me. Um, they're either going to make it in your organization or they're going to move on and they're going to be, they're going to speak highly of your organization as well, because you took okay. care of them. You, you did the right thing. And, and that's important. And again, this is an audience that uh, um, most people are interested in servant leadership, which is what attracted them here. So uh, definitely keep that in mind. Um, we are going to save my favorite, favorite topic to the very end. But Jim, if you don't mind, um, explain why you feel overhiring is so important. Yeah, this is particularly true in growth organizations. Um, you know, as we're growing, you know, the money is usually a little tighter when we're doing a hire. Um, and so people get somebody who's slightly below the competency level, hoping they'll grow into it or right on the competency level and say, I should be okay. But if we're, if the organization is growing and we tend to focus on growth organizations, um, neither of those strategies work particularly well. Um, if I hire somebody already behind the curve, meaning they've got to grow into the job and the organization is growing in front of them, they're going to be chasing a bus they're never going to catch. Right? They're just going to be running and running and running and never catch up to it. And there'll always be a gap just to get to acceptable performance for that particular individual. To somebody who's right on the mark, we're counting on a learning rate that's as high or higher than the organizational growth rate. So if the company's growing 20% a year and that person isn't growing their capacity by 20% a year, they begin to fall behind the organization. And every year they're in that job, it gets worse and worse and worse. And we've all seen this. Somebody who was super great for us early in, in, the, in, the, in the organization, after three or four or five years of growth, all of a sudden they're not as competent as they once were and the organization just outgrew them. So what we advocate is overhire, overclub the shot, get somebody who's more than competent to do the job. They, they will not only do the job, but drive it to the next level. And as you grow, they've got capacity to absorb the growth in, in their personal capacity to execute. And so they still have to learn. Don't get me wrong, because if they stop learning, the bus will drive past them eventually, um, which we talked about earlier. But if they, they have excess capacity and they're learning, they're going to stay in that job and be effective much, much longer than either of your other two hires. And you'll ultimately get your payback for the incremental money you invest in a little, little stronger hire in the beginning. Right now, my notes for that last uh, portion of Jim's talk there is, you know, again, I was thinking about, you have to be curious. You have to have your learner hat on. Um, you don't want, you know, just like you don't want the uh, position to outgrow your employees. You certainly don't want it to outgrow your position either. So you've got to definitely be curious and learning. And, you know, in this chapter, he talks a lot about um, education and educating people and developing. And again, you can pick that all up by reading his book. But uh, there was one, um, one of his clients, I believe, who said, hire right, train right, treat them right, and then fire right if necessary. And he yep. also talks about, hey, if you, if you are a learning organization, you're going to want to um, invest at least one to two percent of your revenue into development. And he's got a great story again there. If you're willing to do it for um, capital, I believe you talk about, uh, then yep. you should be able to be spent at least that fraction of it. Um, we're going to get into motivating your top performers next here. And he refers to um, a quote by one of, uh, I, I enjoy reading anything from Daniel Pink. And Daniel Pink talks about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And I've, mm. 
I had a uh, guest a couple months ago, and he talked about his name was uh, William Seidman, and he talked about neuroscience, and we talked about this exact concept. And William said that it's really that's all true, but the order should be purpose. Because we have to have be passionate about something, then mastery, then autonomy. And I don't know if you knew that. I just wanted to share it with you, and then just mm. remind my listeners: hey, if you want, go listen to the the uh, the book that I did on the Star Factor. It was uh, I, I found it a fascinating conversation. All right, so we've talked about over or, or the A players and underperformers, and and I read you that quote. So now we're going to get into chapter his last chapter on the player hat. And it was interesting as I was reading this chapter, Jim. I was thinking. I want to put the the developing and uh, delegating, excuse me, into the the coach hat. But no matter, you know, it's it, it's all good. And I just was just thinking. I'm thinking aloud here. So um, he talks about, and this is a this is a the great takeaway for me is if when you put on your player hat, when you when you go from your management position and you're going there, you're putting yourself back into the individual contributor mode. And there's, there's a key point he makes is that you want to do it with the goal of getting out of it as fast as you can. Um, and I be, and he writes that uh, lazy CEOs spend about 25% of their time in player mode. And I feel like I'm stealing some of your thunder. So go ahead and talk about the player mode and then we'll get into the 70% and 80% rules. Yep. Um, so, two elements of player mode, you know, obviously if we get to a leadership position, we've gone through the ranks, we're a high impact player already. So when we go into player mode, we can make things happen. And so it's very ego satisfying to go into player mode. Uh, we get a lot of juice out of that, you know, win the sale, design the product, you know, close the books, whatever the thing is that you're involved in. And so it's tempting to go into player mode and hang out there. But the question we always ask leaders is while you're in player mode, who's running the company? Who's doing your job? And the answer is nobody. And so you got to be careful about what percentage of time you spend in player mode. And the main reason to go into player mode is to learn. So funny enough, player and learner are really closely aligned as a leader. So we, we go in mostly, to, when we're in player mode, we're going in for a reason. And generally it's because things aren't exactly the way they should be. Um, in other words, the process didn't turn out the right way. We're not getting the order flow we want. The quality isn't what it needs to be. So we go into player mode to go find it and fix it. And really, that's the main goal is the meta work of while I'm in player mode doing something, I'm, I'm asking myself the questions, do I have the right people around this? Do I have the right systems around this? Have I designed this correctly? Do I need to change the way it's organized? So you're asking leader questions while you're in player mode. So it's really a different way to do learning. Some people learn more passively, reading books, going to conferences and so forth. Some people learn more actively, and that's by going into player mode. And they'll go dig in, they'll go run the process. You talked about go do the job of somebody. Uh, that's an excellent example of if you run a call center, go get on the phones for a couple of hours and you'll have a whole different view of that job and what all those people working for you are doing and maybe improvements that you could make to their job just because you've experienced it for a little while. A quick story, I worked for a company that uh, had a strike as a union uh, shop. They had 140 people when they went out on strike. It was a manufacturing operation and it was a critical automotive part. So management jumped in and, and ran the plant for about three months until the strike broke. Well, during that time, management did what management does, which is, well, why do we do it like this? And how come this piece of equipment's over here? And if we moved them closer, wouldn't have to walk. And before you knew it, they shrank the number of people needed to run that plant. 
And unfortunately, instead of calling back 140 original workers, they called back 70 workers as a result of having gone, being forced into player mode, done all this learning and improvement, and they massively improved their factory as a result of going into player mode like that. And, and I'm not recommending anything about unions or, or anything like that. I'm just saying you'll learn a ton by going into player mode. Having said that, it's easy to get stuck in player mode. Because you're good at it, people want you to do the sales or the engineering or the whatever you're good at. And you, you want to leave because, like I said, if you're doing player, you're not being a leader. I, I analogize it to going to a bad party, right? When you go to a bad party, we're only going to stay an hour and you're, you know exactly where the exit is. <laughs> and that's what you should think when you go into player mode. I'm only staying for an hour and I know where the exit is. Yeah, one of the things I remember from that chapter, Jim, was uh, as I'm reading, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you, I'm pretty sure you gave examples about how, like you, you go in incognito, let's say you're the owner of some restaurant and mm. the people you're being waited out don't know that you're the owner of the restaurant. Well, guess what? You are going to truly know what's going on in your organization by, by experiencing it like everybody else does, not like the VIP does. So that was kind of my summary and takeaway of that yep. part. Look, I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but, but if no. you got something to say, let's make it quick because I do want to get to the 70% and 80% rule. Yeah, no problem. Real quick, it's super hard to get that undercover boss experience. I used to have IT problems with my computer occasionally, and I'd call it and say, hey, I need IT guy to help me. Two IT guys would show up in my office to fix my computer. And one day I go, is this the same treatment everybody gets? And right. they go, not exactly. <laughs> so it's hard to get that sometimes because they know you're the boss. Yeah, well, and I guess you got to be creative, uh, listeners, and how you're going to be able to get the, the candid answers and the truth from your organization, keeping yeah. your, uh, your finger on the pulse of the organization. Okay, Jim, I love this concept, your 70% rule. Please share what this is all about. Yep. Uh, so delegation is a topic that a lot of people struggle with, and they don't quite know when to delegate something. So you know, is he ready? Is she ready? Can I delegate this task? We, we believe intrinsically we're supposed to delegate because we got told to, but I can tell you that great CEOs and great leaders are master delegators and they use what we call the 70% rule to decide when to delegate, which is when somebody is 70% as good as you are, it's time to delegate it. 70% good enough time to delegate. And that's a pretty high standard. Look, we're all pretty switched on, capable individuals. If you try to wait for somebody to be 100% as good as you are, you will never delegate anything. And you get caught in that trap of never delegating. So 70% is close enough. Now, look, you manage somebody who's the first time they do it a little more closely. And as they become 80 and 90, we loosen up how closely we manage them. But what we found is people delegate at 70 and before people over time, the delegated person grows 80, 90, 100, maybe 110, 120, maybe they'll be better than you were at the job. And that's your hope, certainly. So delegate when they hit 70 and you'll be real happy. You did. You're not going to abrogate. I don't hand it over and say, see you later, call me. Mm -hmm. You want to keep in touch with them until they gain competency, but then you can pull away and let them handle the job completely. Great. Look, and when I read that, I thought, hey, that's a very, uh, again, another you know, I don't know if that's a metaphor or simile or analogy, but, you know, 70% that sticks in my mind. I know when I was, a, as you folks who, who know about me and military commands, when I was in command, uh, arguably the most difficult positions for a military officer, I was able to go and do triathlons and mm. also to get my second master's degree. Why? Because I learned to delegate and I learned to delegate it because uh, I was... Uh, 
frankly, I was forced into that. If I didn't do it, I was gonna, I wasn't gonna swim. I was gonna sink. So I enjoyed it. And now we're we're getting ready to close here. And uh, you know, here's another nice quip from Jim. Uh, he talks about the 80% rule for feedback. And truly, if you want to be able to delegate and have it work, you need to listen to Jim on the 80% rule. Yeah. And, and, and 80% is about um, a coaching conversation. So if somebody comes to you with a plan and it's 80% right, in other words, I had something in my head and it's not quite what I thought, but it's about 80% and it should ought to work. We are tempted as leaders to coach up that last 20%. We want to go, we want to show them we're smart, we want to add value, we want to coach up that last 20%. But here's what happens when you do that. They lose ownership. And it's more important to have somebody who has an 80% plan with 100% ownership than somebody that we've coached up to that last 20% to 100% plan, and now they own it probably about 50%. It's a bit like, Tom, your comment, I'd rather work with B players who are happy and focused and doing great and I enjoy working with them. That's a better answer than all A players who are jerks and I don't want to work with them. So somebody comes to you with them, you know, we're super tempted to add value and get that last 20% squeezed out of the plan. And I'm going to tell you, it's better to have 100% ownership by the person who developed it than to squeeze that last 20% out. So that's the 80% rule on delegation is just bite your lip, tell them a great job, carry on. If you have problems, give me a holler. I'm here to help you. Uh, but don't coach up the last 20 unless it's absolutely going to fall apart and blow up if you don't do it. That, then I'd say go ahead and do it. But outside of that, let them do their thing. Well, Jim, this uh, was a pleasure reading your book, and it's been a fun show. Uh, I want to recap something he said. You'd rather have an employee who is 100% committed to a project that is only 80% of the way there than someone who is only 80% committed to something you thought was 100% on target. So let me just share with you that if you're following me on social media, on LinkedIn, you're going to find that I'm going to, I'm going to tether one of Jim's quips to a post and I'm going to remind you of this session and I hope you come back and listen to it, pick up his book. It's a great read. Thank you so much. Again, you'll find everything about this show at yourevolvingleadershipjourney.com. And you can find out the guests and that sort of thing. And so and you'll look and find out about Jim, what he's doing, how you can follow what he's been doing and his books and all that. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure with you last year and I'm looking forward to working with you all of 2020. All right. Have a great day and week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. Be sure to join host Tom Crea for another edition next Monday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a great week.